All right. Well, we are in the book of James, and uh, as uh, Brother Scott had mentioned, my family and I spent um, a year and a half in Peru. We were serving at a Bible college there, and uh, it came with its own set of challenges, some that were, uh, were kind of serious, maybe, um, no water or maybe no electricity for the day, and others uh, like um, trying to find a hamburger that tastes like a North American hamburger is, ve- hamburger is very, very hard um, in Peru. Um, there, were, uh, there was one morning I woke up and opened the, the door of our apartment, and there was a, a flock of sheep and a shepherdess over in the corner throwing rocks at him, trying to get him to move along. And uh, another day, also on campus, one of the staff members asked if I could give him a hand, and I didn't know what I was going to be in for, but I said, sure. And he was trying to load a pig carcass into the back of his um, trunk of his car and take it into town to get it uh, butchered. And then later on that same week, he asked me if 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 I could help him. And at that time, I couldn't. And I found out later that a horse had been hit up on the main road and they were dragging it off of the road so it wouldn't remain on the road. And it remained at the roadside until it was rotted or torn apart. And so that was a, a little bit of a trial. Every time we would walk by to catch the bus, we'd see this carcass of the, the horse. It wasn't, wasn't the greatest. But the trials that James is addressing in our text are, are painful are challenging in many cases, and some cases even life-threatening. James gives the men, women, and children that he's writing a title in verse 1 of this book. In verse 1, he addresses them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. As we look at the book of 1 Peter, we find the same or a similar title given to the recipients of this letter. In 1 Peter 1.1, it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And I bring this up for two different reasons. First of all, so that we can look at James in the context of the time that it was written. And then secondly, for our own personal application. James and Peter are writing Uh, Similar people, people who, according to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, are forced to flee for their lives. There was persecution happening to the Christians in Jerusalem, and it was raging against the Jews that had converted to Christianity and then also to the Gentiles that had followed Christ. They were, it says that they were scattered throughout the regions. You can see at the time period when these books were written, there were multiple leaders of the Roman world. One mentioned last week was Claudius, and he persecuted Jews and Christians. And then his his replacement, Nero, absolutely hated Christians. A Roman historian, Tacitus, wrote this. In their very deaths... They were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with hides of wild beasts and torn in pieces by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set on fire. And when the day became night, they were covered in tar and burned to serve as the evening lights. Now that's serious tribulation, serious trials that they were under. And these believers fled 
to the outer reaches of the Roman Empire to escape this persecution. So that sets the book of James in context. But there's a second reason that I wanted to bring this to our attention, and it was for the application where it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He calls them elect exiles. That's also translated pilgrims. It means simply someone who's traveling through. Pilgrim can be defined as people without a homeland or that they're displaced, that they don't quite fit in. Pilgrims oftentimes have a, have a lack of a stable community. Many times they live under oppression or persecution from a cruel government or enduring circumstances that are just outside of their control. And I believe this is a key in understanding the remainder of our passage, but also the whole book of James. The author, the Holy Spirit, written through the pen of James, reminds us that Christians are pilgrims here on earth. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have become translated from the kingdom of this world to a new kingdom. In Colossians 1.13 it says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that he, was, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious Body that we are citizen, our citizenship is in heaven. Christians are citizens of heaven, residents of earth. This is of primary importance because as we look at enduring and even finding joy in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, we need to recognize that we are citizens. Of heaven, And so with that background, let's look here at verse, um, starting in verse 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you see, when you meet, rather, various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. One of the most striking statements is those first four words, count it all joy. It's hard enough to endure trials, but James points that we should not just endure trials, but that we should view them with joy. A little strange. Now, I've been alluding to something that we need to make clear before we go any further into this message, and that's simply the difference between the purpose of trials for the believer and the purpose of the trials for a non-believer. The purpose of trials of life for those who have surrendered their will to the Lord as the final authority and those that haven't. So if you have not trusted in Jesus as Savior from your sins, if you have not surrendered to him as Lord, that is the final authority for all you think, say, and do, then God's goals 
for trials in your life are to bring you to an understanding that you need him. To bring you to an understanding that you need him. On the other hand, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus as Savior from your sins, if you've surrendered to him as Lord, that is the final authority over all you think, say, and do, then God's goals for trial in your life is to conform you to the image of his son. To conform you to the image of his son. And that's how we can count it all joy. Notice our text. It says there that you will meet various kinds of trials. That's something we can all attest to. We all have sort of hot button issues, something that may affect us, it may be dramatic for us, may not even phase our friend. It may devastate us, but our friend says, eh, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. So why is, it, why is it important that we understand that there are various trials? Because we can't understand how such a simple thing could be considered a crisis in someone else's life, the body of Christ is called to unity. And so we must empathize with each other for the welfare of the whole body. A young mother's crisis may look like a flat tire. An unmarried man may be the trial of new employment or getting his wisdom teeth removed. An adult couple's trial may look like come in the form of an empty nest or a midlife crisis. For the elderly among us, it may look like a burnt out light bulb or chronic debilitating pain. Trials come in all shapes and all sizes. They, they're financial, emotional, physical, and mental. And each of us face those various trials. I heard a comedian speaking one time, and he was talking about getting older and sort of the strangeness of new trials that develop. And he mentioned sleeping. He says he wakes up in the morning and he's sore. Where else can you go and lay and do nothing and wake up and you're, and you're sore? But James doesn't stop here. Notice he continues in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if you feel comfortable writing in your Bible, there's a certain, a few words I want you to underline and one I want you to circle. If you'd underline the testing of your faith. And then if you'd circle, produces. Because as we read God's word, we find something out. Scripture does not minimize the agony of trials, but it doesn't stay there either. Instead, Scripture redirects our perception and understanding of the trials of pain. Trials or suffering in a biblical sense always have a goal in mind. If you're weighed down by burdens and trials of life, if you find yourself burying your head in the pillow at night, 
if it feels like you'll never be able to come out of this difficulty or this crisis, know that in the life of the believer, these things are not random. In Romans 8, verse 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his, what does it say there? His purpose. He has a plan in mind, a purpose that he's working towards to mold and shape you into the image of his son. In verse 3, we have a few of the goals, not all of them, but a few of the goals of the trials of life. First, it produces steadfastness. And then secondly, it promotes maturity. So looking at this idea of producing steadfastness, that is endurance and perseverance, not giving up. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, it says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So notice these byproducts of the pain of trials. We have endurance, continuing on, moving forward, not giving up, learning how to press through even in struggle and pain. It produces character, something that is we love to see in each other, a person of character. It produces hope. And then finally, that phrase that says that it does not put us to shame I, I wrote in my Bible, I have the word confidence there. It does not put us to shame because we are confident in the Lord. In Philippians 3, verse 8 and 10, it says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming, notice, like him in his death. Another goal of trials is maturity. It produces maturity that you would be complete, he says in verse 3, lacking nothing. Now, this phrase is not saying that you'll be perfect. I think we all understand that. But because you have endured trials and trouble, you will be aware. You will be cognizant of others that are experiencing trials and troubles. And you'll be able to minister to them, especially if it's a similar trial than what you've experienced. The crisis that we have experienced, uh, the more crisis that we have experienced the better we are at handling and supporting others in their trials. Take this as an example. We've got the parent with the four-year-old child. And the, we notice the four-year-old is screaming and crying and, and, and stressed out. And from, from their actions, you would think they need to be life-flighted up to Louisville, right? But we come over to the child, we pick them up, and we say, what's going on? What's happening? Tell me what's happening. And they show us, and there's a little splinter, a splinter here in their finger. Because we're mature, because we understand trials and what, what this means, we, he needs to calm down. We need to remove the splinter, put a Band-Aid on it, and we're okay. We can go on. 
because we've experienced trials, because we've experienced those difficulties. Now, when we have a newlywed who loses her child in miscarriage, we need the the elderly, the, the woman who has experienced that difficulty to come alongside and to scoop them up and say, what's going on? How can I care for you? How can I minister to you? I've been through that, and I know what it's like. We need the mature believer who has waded through the trauma of life that they would be empathetic, that they would be perceptive, that they would be sensitive to join in the brokenness of others' lives. At the end of this time, we're going to make this altar available for anyone who needs prayer. Whether you've just come out of the fire, whether you're in the middle of the fire, or whether you sense that you're moving towards a fire or the trouble, the trials of various kinds. But we want to invite you here so you can come to the Lord, so you can pray, so we can have others come and pray for you, to encourage you and offer support, to help carry those burdens. We actually see this heart of empathy in Jesus. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become, notice, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered. When tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And also in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. So if you find yourself in time of need, know that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. Know that he is able and willing and ready to come to give grace, it says there, in our time of need. There's one final thing when we're speaking about suffering in relation to perseverance, in relation to maturity, and finally, it's community. Realization that the realization of Christian community, another goal here. Notice in verse 2, how James refers to those dispersed friends. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. There is a community. Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. We have a community in the church. Humankind is in this together, brothers and sisters. And it hinges a little bit on this word, if we're transparent and share those trials with each other. We have to be willing to let down the guard and share those trials, those difficulties that we're experiencing with each other so we can support each other. You know, the thing about trials is it tests what we thought we already knew. The purpose of of that final exam is to evaluate what we know. You believe, yes, 
okay, let's test that belief. It's not with the purpose of shame, but with the purpose of solidifying our resolve to believe. In Warren Wiersbe's book, written to answer the question of troubles and trials, he says, never doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. And I believe that's why James links the thoughts that we've been talking about with the exhortation of verses 5 through 8 and suffering. Because when do we normally doubt? When we're placed between a rock and a hard place. When, we, when do we start second-guessing our decisions? When we step out and we start to serve or when we step out and, and start to engage in this thing that we believe God had for us and then it doesn't go the way that we anticipated. In 2013, my family and I were living here in Elizabethtown. We had a great house, uh, great cars, great schools for the kids, wonderful friends, a great church family to be at. And then we had the opportunity to go and serve at this Bible college in Peru. And so we started getting rid of all those great things, right? <laughs> Get rid of the great car, sell it. Get rid of the zero-turn mower. I love that mower, you know. Get rid of the, the schools, and, and now we're headed to Peru. We, we packed ourselves into a uh, Toyota Tacoma with three kids and a dog and all of our possessions in the back. And we drove out to California to say goodbye to my in-laws. And in that five days of travel, um, two significant things happened. One, we realized that we needed to stay in the U.S. to support and establish our oldest child. He was 17 at the time in the Navy, and that wasn't going to happen until June. And that the Bible college was not prepared for us to come, that we had planned to go to in, uh, in Peru. And so I'm wondering... You know, now we're living where we're in California and basically homeless. We've got all our stuff in Kentucky all packed up. And Lord, do you really want me in Peru? Like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Darkness set in. I was wondering, did I hear the voice of the Lord at all? I was wondering, why did I sell that Honda Pilot? <laughs> now, now, now we don't have a way to get around like we, you know, like we could with plenty of space. Why did I get rid of that zero turn? <laughs> and it was pitch black. When we come to those moments, sometimes months, of crisis, we must not doubt the truth of God's word. We must press closer in our relationship with him. We must seek him more diligently, not because he's hidden, but because we need to see him more clearly. We need to see his character. We need to see his commitment to us. We need to see that he is genuinely a good, good, good father. But we usually don't feel like that. We feel more like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let's read James's exhortation here. 
starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I have to admit, the passage or the, the struggle that brings me most frequently to this passage, asking for wisdom, is parenting. <laughs> I remember one time I was with the kids trying to determine, you know, in the middle of this struggle, trying to determine which was the liar and which was lying less, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, what's going on here? I was exhausted. I remember trying to do the whole good cop, bad cop scenes, trying to get to the bottom of this. What is going on here with these kids? Lord, give me wisdom. Show me what to do. Show me how to do this. And in that emotionally charged center of our struggle, James says, you need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, call out to God. He will give generously. So how does God give wisdom generously And what does it look like? Because as I was in the middle of that crisis with my kids, I'm crying out, Lord, give me wisdom. Does this cake of wisdom sort of float down from heaven and I eat that and okay, now I know what to do. Or do I say, hey, honey, uh, go ahead and write that letter to the wisdom location and they'll send us some wisdom. In a few days, we'll know what to do. We'll get that package. How do we determine Does he open up our mind and just implant wisdom there? How does God give us wisdom? I think that James actually helps answer this question later in this book. In James chapter 3, verse 17, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. Notice, this is the character of wisdom. As we're making wise decisions, as we're coming to the fork in the road, Lord, what do I do? I've given you authority over all that I think, say, and do, and I want to make wise choices. Okay, well, is it pure? Is this, is moving forward with what you want to do, is it pure? Is it peaceable? Is it gentle? Is it open to reason? Full of mercy, full of good fruits, and sincere. How do we find wisdom in the eye of the storm? In the epicenter, in the crisis of chaos? Well, we need to evaluate our decisions according to the character of wisdom from above. We find God-given wisdom when we evaluate our decisions according to the character of wisdom from above. Is it in line with the character of the wisdom 
of God. What should I do in this crisis? What do I do in this situation? I'm trying to determine between these two colleges. Lord, give me wisdom. Show me what to do. I'm trying to determine between these two jobs. I'm trying, whatever it is, how does it line up with the character of wisdom from above? So now I'm in this trial that's beyond my ability. I'm up to my eyes. I remember first, I'm a citizen of heaven, a child of God. I remember secondly, that God is working good for me, that his goal is only good for me and that he has a goal in mind. I also remember that he gives wisdom when I ask, that he's generous. And I remember what wisdom looks like from James 3.17. I can, I can hear some of you saying, uh, I see a problem in some of those verses, Josh. See, it says in verse 6 through 8, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. He is unstable in all his ways. And you may feel like your doubt is greater than your faith. You may feel more like a dinghy than like a barge, not moving under the pressures of the storm, not tossed by the wind and the waves. And your eyes land upon verse 7, which says that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If that's you, and I confess, that's me oftentimes, looking at my failure rather than God's faithfulness, let's back up a minute and look at the whole section starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously and to all without reproach. I believe if you're asking for wisdom, if you are petitioning your generous father, isn't that faith? If you are coming to God and admitting your need for wisdom, isn't that faith? If you are asking for insight and for guidance, even in the eye of the storm, even in the difficulty with the waves raging and you're asking, isn't that expressing faith? I believe you do have it. You know, picture this. If a, ro- if a boat is rocking and because of the rocking of the waves, for you to remain standing your body has to do this. Am I standing even though I'm rocking? You're still standing, keeping balance. But James does mention another man. He gives him a title, the unstable man, also called the double-minded. And he's this type. He looks at his troubles 
He evaluates his trials. And when the weight of the crisis is bearing on, down on him, he cries out, give me wisdom. And he looks to heaven expecting the cake to come down. And he writes on the paper expecting to get the, the what to do in the mail. But he fails to search the scriptures. He fails to seek brothers and sisters and is honest with them and says, pray for me, support me, help me. He refuses to apply the wisdom that God gives in his word. The double-minded reject God's ways and God's wisdom and instead use their own plans and ideas. The double-minded reject God's ways, God's wisdom, and instead use their own plans and ideas. I want to ask the worship team to join me on stage as we close with two things. The first is a, a question. Does our crisis overwhelm God? Or another way, I can put it another way, can God handle our trauma? And now a little riddle. I'm going to need some audience participation on this. Can you imagine a time when the entire population of the world was in crisis? Can you imagine? Can you tell me of a time when the entire population of the world was in crisis? Not just most of the people, but every single person. Anybody? Now? <laughs> Good. Let's say the flood. Everyone on the planet was in crisis. Up to here, you might say. Wouldn't it reveal a little bit of the character, the position, the posture of the Lord in what that crisis would look like for him. But it says in Psalm 29, verse 10, the posture, the character of God at the point of the flood. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. It sounds like he's in control, doesn't it? It sounds like he wasn't stirred up or anxious or worried. And I believe that it's the same now when we are in crisis, when we are in anxiety and we come to him, he says, I'm in control. I've got this. I'll take care of you. Let's pray. Lord, allow these truths to sink deep into our hearts. That you are in control, that you have our, our best in mind, that you are a good, good father. For those here that have not put their faith in you, that have not trusted you for salvation, cannot say, that you are the final authority over their lives, that any trial is bringing them, is causing them to recognize their need for you. 
I pray that they would recognize that and see that, and that you would draw them to yourself, and that they would submit their lives to you. Lord, you alone can work good out of the chaos of our lives. You alone can bring beauty from ashes. You alone are refining us and making us into the image of your son. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen hands that hang down. We pray that you would strengthen feeble knees. In Jesus' name, amen.